0: Jeremy, thanks very much. Please keep that passage open, and as we pray as we come to it together? Dear to Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for the wonderful, rich stories that you have caused to be written down for us. We pray that they would encourage us and teach us this morning, help us to see Jesus as we've just sung, and whether we are familiar with Christian things or just exploring them ourselves, we pray that you would help us to listen to you. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, there is nothing quite like a well-told story to advance the cause of justice. We have seen that this month, haven't we, with the ITV driver, Mr. Bates versus the post office. I wonder if you watched that. A nearly 20-year-old miscarriage of justice that has suddenly been brought to public and political attention. It cannot be ignored any longer. We care about justice, but we live in a world where injustice is normal. Those who ought to be rewarded by justice often aren't. Those who deserve to face justice often aren't. If you're not yet convinced about Christian things this morning, you may not be sure that God even cares about justice. Uh, If you are following Jesus, you, you may not be sure what God's justice looks like. How should our faith in Jesus affect our expectations and our experiences of justice? Well, our reading today of those two chapters tells the story of God working tirelessly behind the scenes to ensure that justice comes. It it is there to tell us, as God's people, that it is worth living for him in such a way that we trust his justice. Even when life is unfair, God has not taken his eyes off the case. Um, Those two chapters together are a tale of two brothers Um, a biblical spot the difference. It may not look as if they are connected, uh, but they are tightly and carefully woven together. Just look at how chapter 38 and 39 begin. Chapter 38, verse 1. At that time, Judah left his brothers and went down to stay with a man of Adullam named Hira. And chapter 39. Now Joseph had been taken down to Egypt, Potiphar, An Egyptian who was one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard, bought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him there. So uh, Judah sold Joseph into slavery. Is he going to get away with his sin? That's the story of chapter 38. Joseph is a slave in Potiphar's house. Can he expect any justice? It's the story of chapter 39. Both of them live far away from God's people. Uh, away, they live amongst people who don't know God. But God isn't absent. God is going to ensure that justice is going to come. And so we're going to work our way uh, through both chapters, um, the bit, including the bits that uh, Jeremy didn't read, some of which are pretty awkward. Um, but we're going to see as we go a couple of major kind of practical challenges for our lives, as, as well as at the same time keeping our eyes on that big picture of justice. It's one big truth from each chapter. First of all, godlessness ultimately repaid with shame. Chapter 38, godlessness ultimately repaid with shame. So alarm bells are meant to be ringing as soon as we hear of Judah's choice of wife. Verse 2, there Judah met the daughter of a Canaanite man named Shua. So the Canaanites, they worshipped false gods. Uh, They... And God said to his people, they're going to lead you astray from me. Uh, Knowingly, marrying someone who doesn't follow our faith in Jesus continues to be a foolish and a sinful thing to do today. The consequences for Judah were dire. Verse 7. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the Lord's sight, so the Lord put him to death. Well, this is my attempt at a joke. Um... It has to be the most unimaginative name in the Bible, doesn't it? Darling, it's a boy. What should we call him? Uh, and it just kind of stuck after that. Sorry about that. I couldn't resist. Ur's life, though, was no joke. He goes down in infamy, the first individual in the Bible to be summarily executed by God for his evil. His brother is no better Then Judah said to Onan, sleep with your brother's wife and fulfill your duty to her as a brother-in-law to raise up offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the child would not be his. So whenever he slept with his brother's wife, he spilled his semen on the ground to avoid providing offspring for his brother. The Lord put him to death also. While Judah's strange-sounding request to his son Onan, it reflects the Old Testament concern that families amongst God's people don't die out. It is later going to be written down in Deuteronomy 25 as the law of brother in law marriage. Although that law stipulates that the brother, the surviving brother, should marry his brother's widow to ensure that she is cared for. But Judah has no concern for Tamar, he doesn't tell Onan to marry her, and Onan has no love for her either. Onan gets his sexual pleasure, he ensures that no nephew will inherit his brother's estate because he wants to get hold of that, he denies his dead brother a child to carry his name, he deprives Tamar the dignity of motherhood, and he leaves his father in a dilemma. Verse 11, Judah then said to his daughter-in-law Tamar, live as a widow in your father's household until my son Shelah grows up. For he thought he may die too, just like his brother's. So Tamar went to live in her father's household. You see, Judah needs Shelah to carry on his family name. But he thinks to himself, I'm not going to risk him with Tamar. He seems to be one of those men who always finds a way to blame the woman. He's thinking to himself, all those deaths, they must be Tamar's fault. No way am I giving Shelah to her. Better to get rid of her. And so Tamar takes justice into her own hands. Verse 14. She took off her widow's clothes, covered herself with a veil to disguise herself, and then sat down at the entrance to a name. So Tamar figures that now that Judah has recovered from his grief after his wife has died, there's a pretty good chance she's going to be in the mood, he's going to be in the mood. So she strikes a seductive pose, she gives Tamar the look, uh, so she gives Judah the look, and Judah doesn't need a second invitation, Tamar is no fool, though. She knows that Judah is hardly a man of his word. She thinks, "Well, if you're not going to pay me now, what guarantee are you going to give me that you'll pay me later? Would you give me something as a pledge until you send it?" She asked. He said, "What, sh- what pledge should I give you? Your seal and its cord and the staff in your hand." She answered, uh, "The equivalent, perhaps, of a credit card and a driver's license." He really was in the mood, and the first stage of Tamar's plan is complete. Now she just needs to wait for the wheels of justice to turn. Verse 24. About three months later, Judah was told, your daughter-in-law Tamar is guilty of prostitution, and as a result, she is now pregnant. Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned to death. Well, Judah's justice hardly strikes us as just, does it? No due process, no desire to investigate, The most severe sentence he can imagine handed down to her in an instant. But then comes Tamar's wonderful moment of vindication. Verse 25, enjoy it. As she was being brought out, she sent a message to her father-in-law. I am pregnant by the man who owns these, she said. And she added, see if you recognize whose seal and cord and staff these are. Judah recognized them and said, she is more righteous than I. Since I wouldn't give her to my son Shaler, and he did not sleep with her again. Well, Judas showed no shame, did he, when his friend couldn't find Tamar? All he was interested in was preserving his reputation. He thinks to himself, "I don't want to be a laughing stock." But now his wily daughter-in-law presents exhibits A, B, and C, and she shames him publicly. And generations, literally thousands of years worth of readers, have laughed at Judah's expense ever since. And just just notice the delicious irony in the story. So so this is the man in chapter 37 who told his father to examine a blood-stained robe to to prove that his brother was dead. And now his daughter-in-law says, examine these things. The man who deceived his father with the blood of a goat is deceived when he tries to pay for sex using the same currency. You see, the joke's on him. Godlessness ultimately repaid with shame. The Bible warns us that our sin, if we do not repent, will find us out. We may think we've got away with it. We may do so for a long time, but God will ensure that justice will come. Either suddenly, as it did for Ur and Onan, or over a much longer period of time, like it did for Judah. You see, you and I, we can't avoid living amongst people who don't know God, like Judah did. But Judah's story warns us that that we must avoid living lives that are morally indistinguishable, or to be honest, even worse than theirs. And if we fail to heed the warning, we will get our comeuppance in the end. And yet, Judah's story isn't quite over yet. Verse 27. When the time came for her to give birth, there were twin boys in her womb and the firstborn was named Perez. Godlessness ultimately repaid with shame, but also with grace, also with grace, because this little boy Perez, he is going to be an ancestor of Jesus and his mother, the pious prostitute, will be the first woman named in the New Testament. Matthew chapter 1 the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. You see, Judah feared that his name was going to fall out of history. But Jesus descended from him, not any of his other brothers. Judah tried to get rid of Tamar but God made sure that that family skeleton didn't remain firmly locked up in the cupboard. Ur er and Onan learned to their eternal shame that the wages of sin are death. But Judah and Tamar's name stand as witnesses to God's amazing grace, which covers our shame. Grace which doesn't blot us out of history, but writes us into Jesus' family tree. But is grace really compatible with justice? It hardly seems fair, does it, for God to, to kind of cover up Judah's unrighteousness as if it doesn't matter. And what about when living for God doesn't, seems to bring injustice, not blessing? Is it worth living for God and trusting God then? Well, let's turn to the second half of the story and the better-known brother. Godlessness, sorry, godliness often rewarded with suffering. Godliness often rewarded with suffering. Verse 2 of chapter 39. The Lord was with Joseph so that he prospered and he lived in the house of his Egyptian master. So Judah, he is with his friend Hiram. Joseph has a better friend than that. At the most apparently precarious moment of his life, who is with him? The Lord is with him. And his whole life witnesses to that fact. Verse 3. When his master saw that the Lord was with him, and that the Lord gave him success in everything he did, Joseph found favour in his eyes and became his attendant. How does Potiphar know that the Lord is with Joseph? Well, presumably because at some point Joseph told him about his faith. He didn't divide the sacred and the secular parts of his life as if as if every other day was a kind of God-free day, and Sundays were kind of the God day. Nor does he blame God for his troubles and deny his faith. No, he keeps on believing, he keeps on living for God, and others see it, and blessing follows. So, verse 4 Joseph found favor in his eyes and became his attendant. Potiphar put him in charge of his household and entrusted to his care everything he owned. The Lord blessed the household of the Egyptian because of Joseph. The blessing of the Lord was on everything Potiphar had in the house and in the field. So there's blessing for Joseph in the present and also a down payment of blessing for the future. Do you remember, this? remember, this is a young man in a foreign land, a young man who has not, to be honest, shown much leadership potential or great interpersonal skills. And yet God is destining him to be the governor of Egypt. And so he rewards Joseph's godliness by giving him Potiphar as a model to follow. Just think how much Joseph learnt from observing Potiphar's wisdom and business acumen and how to relate with people in Egypt. We shouldn't underestimate how much God may bless us and others through us if we persevere in living godly lives. Whether we chose the circumstances we find ourselves in or not. Like Joseph, we may be the only believer in our workplace. Do we realize that we are put into that workplace to bring blessing to other people? Now, of course, our colleagues must first of all know that we're Christian, and so we need to tell them, even in a very simple way. But they should look at us, and they they think to themselves, you know, I don't share that person's faith. But those Christians in this workplace, or that Christian in this workplace, he or she is the most likable person conscientious, hard-working person here. It is good to have Christians in this workplace. So I wonder if we go to work in the week thinking, how can I bring God's blessing into this place? And if so, we may expect God to reward us with blessing as well, putting people into our lives from whom we can learn so much. And who knows what God may have in store for us in the future? if we commit to live publicly visible, good, and godly lives. And yet, blessing doesn't always appear to follow godliness. Sometimes the exact opposite seems to happen. Verse 6. Now Joseph was well built and handsome, and after a while his master's wife took notice of Joseph and said, come to bed with me. Joseph is a young man, an attractive young man. I presume that he knows that. Okay? He is a long way away from home. He has a rich and powerful woman throwing himself at him repeatedly. Potiphar trusts Joseph 110%. It's her idea, not his idea. No one will ever know. But Joseph is not like his unrighteous older brother, he is not like his wicked cousins he is not going to risk his position for a moment of illicit sexual pleasure he honors his master respects his master's wife notice he says you're his wife and above all he loves god verse 9 how could how then could i do such a wicked thing and sin against god It's not the big point of the story, but our two chapters together, they are a pretty graphic picture of the wickedness and dangers of sexual sin. They remind us that both men and women are sexual sinners, that all of us are predisposed to misuse God's good gift of sex intended only for a man and a woman who are married to each other. The temptation to sin sexually will vary at different times of our lives, in different circumstances, but ultimately it is our love for God alone that will keep us from falling into it. And in those moments, perhaps, when we really could get away with it, the fear of offending God must be the worst thing we could ever imagine. Joseph takes the right steps. You notice he he refuses to go anywhere near her. And we may need to do that if there are acute areas of sexual temptation in our lives, refuse to go anywhere near it. But his godliness is no match for her scheming. Verse 11. One day he went into the house to attend to his duties, and none of the household servants was inside. She caught him by his cloak and said, come to bed with me. But he left his cloak in her hand and ran out of the house. So like Tamar before her, Potiphar's wife spies an opportunity. Like Tamar, she gets her hands on the evidence to back up her story. Unlike Tamar, her cause is unjust. So verse 16. She kept his cloak beside her until his master came home. Then she told him this story. That Hebrew slave you brought us came to me to make sport of me. But as soon as I screamed for help, he left his cloak beside me and ran out of the house. So to quote Shakespeare, the lady doth protest too much. Does she, did she really need to tell her story to the servants? Did she really need to show Exhibit A to um, her husband? Shouldn't her word have been enough? But lies have a tendency to get a life of their own. And her husband has little choice about what to do next. When his master heard the, slave, heard the story, his wife told him, saying, This is how your slave treated me. He burned with anger. Joseph's master took him and put him in prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. Now, I am pretty sure, I suspect, that Potiphar could have had Joseph executed at this point. But he merely sends him to prison. Maybe he doubts his wife's accusations. Perhaps Joseph's previously impeccable record, his godliness, has won him the benefit of the doubt. I suspect both of those things were true. Either way, Joseph is going to suffer. And I wonder how many times he thought to himself, was it really worth living a godly life? I wonder how often he prayed about the injustice he was experiencing as he sat there in Egypt's high security prison. But suffering is often the strange reward that God gives to his faithful children. The Apostle Peter wrote to Christians who lived amongst people who didn't know God. And he said to them, live such good lives among the pagans though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God. He, he told them to live such good lives that people would ask them about their faith. We, we learned about that a couple of weeks ago, the beginning of the month. And maybe at the back of his mind, at Peter's mind, is Joseph's experience at the first half of this chapter. There is Joseph living a good life. There are people around him discovering more about his God. But if... The first half of the chapter was in Peter's mind. The second half of the chapter is in Peter's mind as well. Joseph's unjust suffering. Peter says, to this, by which he means unjust suffering, you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. So like Joseph, Jesus was falsely accused when he'd done no wrong. Like Joseph, he was tempted, yet he never sinned. Like Joseph, the reward he got for godliness was suffering. And like Joseph, his suffering brings salvation to others. Godliness often rewarded with suffering, but also with hope. Verse 20. But while Joseph was there in the prison, the Lord was with him. He showed him kindness and granted him favor in the eyes of the prison warder. So the warder put Joseph in charge of all those held in the prison, and he was resp- made responsible for all that was done there. The warder paid no attention to anything under Joseph's care because the Lord was with Joseph and gave him success in whatever he did. Godliness rewarded with suffering, but also with hope. The story begins, uh, ends, doesn't it, as it began. The only difference is the location. God has not abandoned Joseph. He is going to be with him. He is going to use him to bless the world. But he needs to suffer first, like Jesus did, the righteous one who died for the unrighteous, for you and me. And so we do not need to face the sentence of death upon our wickedness like Ur and Onan did. We do not need to fear being publicly shamed like Judah when our sin finds us out on the last day. Instead, we can trust that Jesus bore our shame in his body on the cross and the justice that we deserve to face has been paid already. Well, if you were or are a falsely accused sub-postmaster through all those years of injustice, knowing that Alan Bates was with you must have been a pretty big reassurance. reassurance How much greater must the Lord's presence with Joseph strengthen him? How much must Jesus' presence with us encourage us? It's a tale of two brothers. There's a villain and a hero. The villain discovers that godliness is ultimately repaid with shame. The hero, that godliness is often repaid with suffering. The greatest hero though, of course, is God, behind the scenes ensuring that perfect justice will come. And so this week... May we turn away from godlessness and commit to godliness in every area of our lives. Maybe especially today, following Joseph's example, at work and in the face of sexual temptation. And let us trust God for grace and persevere in hope, even if we suffer unjustly. Jesus' grace covered our shame. He suffered, died and rose again for us to give us eternal hope. Should we bow our heads for a moment of quiet and then uh, for our own reflection and then Ryan is going to come and lead us in prayer.